Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 87. This week, I sit down with film and television composer Roger Neal. We talk about his experiences composing for TV shows like King of the Hill and Mozart in the Jungle, as well as films such as 20th Century Woman and Beginners. We chat about how he got his start, the fast-paced, tight turnaround world of TV, the importance of not being complacent, breaking patterns to trigger inspiration, and finding ways to maximize what you do best. So when I was sitting down to write this intro today, I had a lot of things pop up that seemed to intersect and beckon me to talk about how important your daily actions are in setting you up for success in your career. And we haven't done a good old Atomic Habits style rant in a while, so I figured it's time for a refresher, right? So towards the end of my chat with Roger, we talk about the interesting fact that a lot of times the most talented person you know when you start out in music often becomes the one that leaves music to do something else, which seems crazy, but not if you think about the amount of work that it takes to have a career in this industry. And those of us that are gifted with the innate ability to shred on a guitar or sing in perfect tune are usually not spending hours and hours after class in the practice rooms because they already have massive amounts of talent. Maybe they aren't being challenged enough to get in there and practice. Maybe they feel like they're already at the top of their game. They don't see a reason to put the work in. Meanwhile, the rest of us spend countless hours getting better at whatever our craft might be. Piano, guitar, vocals, production, doesn't matter. We build that habit of working and at times realize that the only way to get an opportunity that might normally go to someone more talented than us is to outwork them. Without that willingness to outwork everybody and to get better every single day, it's pretty easy to get left behind, even if you are on paper more talented. So I mentioned Atomic Habits when I started out. The author, James Clear, has a great newsletter, and I saved a quote from it the other day. Ambition is when you expect yourself to close the gap between what you have and what you want. Entitlement is when you expect others to close the gap between what you have and what you want. And I think this really ties into what I was just talking about. When you know that you're the best or that you have a skill set you need to master, you are the only one that can close that gap. Now, this is an excellent spot to drop the classic Atomic Habits line of getting 1% better every day will make you 37 times better in a year. Pretty crazy. And so this also ties into another quote that I saved. I save a lot of quotes, y'all. This one from author Gretchen Rubin. What you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. Are you practicing every day? Are you writing lyrics every day? Are you training your ear as a mixer every day? This is how you get 1% better every day. You do the work consistently. And finally, this last thought is probably the one that sparked this whole intro. And I 
didn't know that I'd end up writing about it today, but it's just something that's been in my head all day ever since I heard it. So this morning, I started a course put on by YouTuber and productivity expert Ali Abdal. He said something that really sums up a lot of the things that have come up on this show over the years into a single sentence. Action is the foundation. I wish I could say that I put those words together myself, but I didn't because it really sums up the only way to build a career in any industry. Without a strong foundation of taking action, you will never build anything. If you want to build and sustain a long career in the music industry, you have got to develop core foundational habits, routines, and actions that will make you 1% better every day. I think this is the absolute most important thing you can do for your career. More important than working on a hit song, more important than landing a spot on a big tour or whatever. Remember, those moments in the limelight will disappear as quickly as they came. And so I'll close with a question. What action can you take every day to push your career forward? Today's guest is award-winning film and television composer Roger Neal. Roger's best known for his scores for the film's 20th Century Women, Don't Think Twice, Beginners, and for his work on television series such as Amazon's Mozart in the Jungle, CBS's Mom, and the long-running Fox series King of the Hill. He's also worked extensively in the video game world on blockbuster titles such as Assassin's Creed Revelations, Borderlands, and many others. He holds a PhD from Harvard University. He arranges and orchestrates for recording artists like Beck, Kygo, and Michael Jackson, and is a multi-instrumentalist and world music enthusiast. So I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do it, but we're going to try to cover it all. So welcome to the show, Roger Neal. What's up, Roger? How are you? Thank you. You got all the big hits in there in a short amount of time. Thank you. <laughs> I try. I try. How's your day going? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm just here in my studio and I got a bunch of deadlines, which are all, uh, I'm all laid on. So it's just, you know, a normal day. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like uh, the life of a composer. I feel like film composer has to be towards the top of uh, most overworked jobs in the music industry. <laughs> would, you, would you agree or... Well, there is something about just the amount of hours that we crunch. You know, if you get to a certain level in the profession, you, you get paid pretty well. But um, when you uh, balance that against how many hours it takes to deliver, it's like you start to earn minimum wage after a while. It's like you're the poorest paid person <laughs> on the project, you know. And for creative endeavors, just like writing music generally, and I think for film scoring, once you get into something, it's like, you know, it's 12, 14 hour days when the crunch is coming. So that's um, can be pretty intense. I know you've worked kind of all over the industry. Do you feel like films are worse because of the way deadlines pile up and people make last minute cuts and picture changes? Or do you think it's kind of the same everywhere? Well, hmm. there's good and bad of every type of project. And I do enjoy the fact that I'm able to do different things. Television. Today I'm working on, I'm late on an animated series I'm working on for Cartoon Network. Feature films, you know, other projects. But I think the main, two main differences between television and film deadline wise are this with television it's really nice just to be able to have this you know hard and fast deadline which is not months down the road it's next thursday at six you know that's it and uh it kind of gives a composer clarity <laughs> and also it's simply less hours but with the movie you have a more expansive time hopefully and that allows the composer to really experiment and discover so um i enjoy that about films because i think you know, when you have, obviously when you have time to explore in, the, in music and try different things, you're going to end up with an end result, which is more uh, unusual. And that's gratifying. Yeah. Is it common when you're about to start a movie to sit down with directors and producers and talk about like 
the sonic landscape options and what feels good for what they're thinking even before they shoot? Like, do you get involved that early? Yeah, hopefully. Many times I am. Sometimes it's not the case. But yeah, it's um, the ideal situation for a film composer is to have a good gestation period where you really just get into the world of the movie in, in hand because you really want to be able to try to create music which is you know signifies this particular movie these characters these emotions in a way that's unique and ultimately will identify that particular movie in a way that so the music does not sound like anything else so when you you know when it's done successfully you'll hear a piece of music and think oh i, I know what that's from i remember that movie and and it's all locked together but that's you know, it just takes time yeah and it's a very collaborative thing which is what i really love about film music is just being able to work hand in hand, eyeball to eyeball with the director or whoever's in charge, usually the director and try things and experiment and, and have fun with it. That's awesome. Well, before we go on a million tangents, I, I always try to start with how everybody gets sucked into this business. How did you know that music is what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, well, I was always a musician kind of, you know, it's like I started playing music seriously when I was nine or 10. And, um, band class in elementary school and i just started playing i started playing flute with my first instrument and i just i just got it you know really quickly i was like after picking up this instrument after a few months it was kind of clear that that's what i was going to be doing music you know i just had a natural aptitude for it i do not come from a musical family at all but um you know they're all supportive and that's that's how it started so i just you know i love that so i started out as a kid like as a as a classical music player and i, I found that really fun and exciting and then you know like most uh boys we turn into teenage guys and uh at that point like i want to play in bands so i picked up a guitar and uh became like a headbanger which is a lot of fun you know so they played in bands and <laughs> so so i said you know i always had like a real kind of um split personality between like serious music and pop music and being a rocker and being a classical guy and exploring other types of music so i always just like had these really eclectic tastes yeah throughout all my all my you know younger days and i ultimately just you know sort of figured out that one professional area that i could sort of continue to explore all these types of music the one professional area that made sense to me was in film music you know just like you can bring to bear a lot of different points of view and, and types of music and with your music it can be very erudite and you can be very dumb and that that's that's nice to have those sort of a, <laughs> options you know sometimes you just <laughs> want to play a c chord with the melody on top <laughs> so yeah <laughs> it was a good fit for me yeah this kind of i i it's the only profession it's the only skill set i have so i um, you know they stop making movies i'm sunk well you're doing okay you, you <laughs> seem to be uh staying busy for for quite a while so i have been knock on wood <laughs> you went uh i think if i remember in my research uh usc yeah. studying composition yeah. or or just yeah. music in general as I mentioned earlier, I started out as a flute player and then I kind of like let that go and I'd be, you know, run into other areas. But then when I got ready to go to college, you know, 17, 18, I realized my, my strongest suit was still the flute. Like I just played that the best. And so I entered USC as a flute player and that was not a good fit. You know, I got there and uh, <laughs> there's about 40 other flute players at USC and I was the 37th best one. So, um, you know, it was not the best fit. And, and fortunately I was rescued by, um, one of my first year professors who was teaching theory at USC and just said, you need to be in the composition department because I was kicking ass in theory class. So thank God that happened. That's good. So I, I went to uh, Berkeley college of music and I was, ah. I had to be at the bottom of the guitar players, but I went for recording and that that's why I went. 
But yeah, when you're in those classrooms full of those kids that are like performance majors in their instrument and they start playing, you're like, how did they even let me in this room? I know. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I felt. But uh, I found a different path, which is why I went there anyway. But I was going to ask you, you continued on education. You went all the way PhD. And I think that's more common in composition and in theory and like musicology, but not so much in the broader music industry. What made you want to keep going? Well, so I was at USC as a composition major and um, did pretty well. And I felt like I wanted to continue getting training at that high level, you know, university level. And uh, mm. it kind of happened. It was kind of just an accident. I met a professor. I was at the Aspen music, Summer Music Camp. And I met a composer there who was a professor at Harvard. And we just took a liking to each other. He liked his, my music and I his. And it was as simple as this. He just reached out to me one day that summer and said, what are you doing next year? Come to Harvard if you have nothing else going on. It was an offer I couldn't refuse. So, so that, that's what got me there. Yeah. And uh, it was just one of these kind of like crazy lucky breaks. People do talk to me, ask me, um, you know, for career advice and, and, and how to use my journey as a, as a model. My journey is not a good model because I think I've had so many tremendously lucky breaks. Um, it's mm. hard to replicate that. That was one of them. So this, uh, this composer, Earl Kim, wonderful man, the late Earl Kim, spoke to me and, and said, you know, come to Harvard. And I said, that's, you know, sure. Um, I, I was looking for a master's program, Dr. Kim, and uh, I would love to, you know, I need a couple of years of more training. He said, we don't do master's. We just do PhDs. So you start the PhD program. And it was um, full tuition. Just show up. So that's what brought me there. That's a win right there. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. I, well, it's, funny is not quite the word, but of course I did this and it was great. You know, being at a place like that and there's so many opportunities to to make music and to meet, you know, extraordinary artists and just people from around the world. Uh, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. But then ultimately I came to Hollywood, proverbially speaking, and did film scoring. And people will ask, do I use my PhD studies now in my scoring? And, and um, yeah, the answer is kind of like, well, sometimes, but not it ended up not being so crucial in a weird way. When I started working professionally in television, I kind of realized I probably knew almost everything I needed to know when I was 17 to do film scoring <laughs> and everything else was just, um, you know, extra, extra credit. Right, right. So I look back at the PhD portion of my life as something I did for a while, which was awesome, you know, and now I'm doing something else. Yeah. Those whole levels of life experience and, you know, living in Boston. What was Boston like music scene wise at that time? Was it a cool place to be? Oh, just great. It's just great. Yeah. I love that city. It's a good city. Yeah. It was great. There's great live music. There's great classical music. There was great opportunities within the university to work with students, uh, make orchestras, put on very elaborate shows. Um, yeah. Like for example, I, um, I put together an orchestra as a graduate student with some colleagues that was just a conducting orchestras. The only purpose of this orchestra was to conduct. There was only like five orchestras on this campus of 6,000 students. So it's, it's pretty amazing the amount of talent there. So we had this one orchestra that just the only purpose of it was to play some music and to have people conduct and, and learn. And um, there was six of us who ran this thing. One of our members became the conductor of the Honolulu Symphony. And another one of our of our associates became the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, um, Alan Gilbert. So it's a kind of amazing, like how, That's awesome. what you can do out of a dorm room. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. Which, which also kind of emblematic of a place like that. Just, you know, there is something about a, a wealthy university with lots of talent that, yeah, you could take advantage of the, of the talent around you and learn, you know, learn from them. 
Yeah. I've brought this up on the podcast so many times. I don't know where this phrase came from, but you know, there's that, that idea that, you know, you're the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And if you're hanging out with people at that level who are wanting to come up with an orchestra just so that everybody can work on their conducting, you're just, you're always upping your game. And I think that's like something to remember that sometimes you just kind of need to look at who you're working with. And maybe that's part of the reason that you might be holding yourself back in some way. But yeah, but it sounds like an awesome opportunity and awesome experience. I think it's great. No, that's an excellent point you make. And it's, it's something I, do, I also do talk about to younger composers trying to figure out how to network. I point out from my own experiences that it's so much of the time starting the career choices is not about like meeting some famous person who's going to, you know, let you score their film. They already got their guy, that famous person. That's right. It's more likely people that you just already know who are kind of around your sphere and you train each other in a way. Yeah. You know, like if you have a friend who might be interested in making movies, encourage that person and help that person make movies. And then you can score that movie. And then hopefully you guys continue on with brilliant careers. That's a tried and true process that has certainly true for me. And it does work. That's kind of the perspective on networking that I feel like people don't bring up. They think networking is like, go find the big fish and then like, you know, beg at their feet for and let me do this gig for you for free. But really, it's making genuine friendships with people that you're working with. Everybody kind of wins together. I mean, there's so many A&R guys that hire their old roommate to mix and master stuff or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's because now they're the ones making the choices and they know their friends are good. It's like everybody just comes up together, you know? That works. That's the way it works. And it's also, um, that's a demystifying point of view that it also takes kind of the, um, the pressure off. You don't have to move to Los Angeles or New York or, or you know, cultural centers. A better path to success, however you want to define that, is simply by just creating stuff in the environment that you're around, that you are already in. That, I, I think, is a, just the method that always works. Despite the fact that you say you don't have to move to Los Angeles, let's talk about how you moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the beginning of your, uh, your film score career in L.A. like? You know, it's a similar story to the Harvard story, which is like, it was so easy that it's not instructed for anybody else, but it's a good story. So I'll tell you. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So back at USC, I was in the composition department and USC music school is physically next door to the film school, a few hundred feet away. Uh, and back in those days, you would just, if you wanted to score some student films, you just walk over to the cinema school and put like, you know, a note on the bulletin board. You, you'd make some flyers at Kinko's. It probably still works that way. Like, you probably could still do that. But, you know, so I was USC. I scored some films uh, while I was doing everything else, all my other studies. And it wasn't necessarily where I wanted. It wasn't where my vision was at that time, but I enjoyed doing this little film scoring. Yeah. So a few years later, I find myself at Harvard. And one of my buddies who was at the USC Cinema School reached out. He had just shot a feature-length film, and he wanted me to score it. And uh, this is, you know, during my graduate school studies. So I took some time and scored this movie called An American Summer my first uh, feature credit. And I scored it with a small orchestra of students in a dining hall at the university. So that, that was my first foray. Awesome. And uh, the movie and, and the score were not particularly good, but what do you expect? However, there was a little theme I wrote for that movie at American Summer, which is kind of nice, kind of epic sounding. Then what happened is I'm still at Harvard and I, and I read about a fellowship program being offered by BMI the royalty organization, and it was called the Pete Carpenter Fellowship. It was like a grant designed to bring young composers who weren't in, quote-unquote, Hollywood to Hollywood and learn film music. That was the design of this. So that seemed cool. So I applied to this particular thing, and I won it. 
the Pete Carpenter Fellowship. Nice. It still exists today at BMI, and it's, it's really a really good program. I was the first person to win it, and um, that brought me to temporarily to Los Angeles, where I met a whole bunch of really famous composers. Michael Kamen, the late Michael Kamen, the late great Quincy Jones, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo, who's still a friend today. Nice. And this program was funded and sort of supervised by the TV composer Mike Post, who at that time, this is the late 80s, no, this is the late mid-90s, already had for 20 years had been the king of all television music. His career was just gigantic, Mike Post. So I was doing this fellowship and just like working with him and I was playing some stuff and um, he liked me. And he said, what are you doing when you're done with Harvard? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, how would it work for me? So, you know, sure. I uh, don't know what I was going to do. So I wrapped up my studies, drove across country and started working in the studio. It's kind of like a, um, you know, what one does when you're working for a composer, a sort of coffee pourer and uh, kind of midi guy. And I, you know, worked in the studio <laughs> midi guy. recording stuff. Uh, and yeah, and that, you know, in that era, this mid nineties, midi was brand new. So the fact that I was like proficient in midi put me in a really nice position. And a lot of composers who were previously working for my post some of them were sort of getting out of the business because they couldn't adjust to the technology changes. Oh yeah, because this is before racks of computers. This is racks of synths with a bunch of MIDI. Yeah, this is, it is a transitional period. Like just a few years later, we came racks of computers, but uh, not quite yet. So that that went well for a day or two, and and Mike <laughs> hired me. <laughs> Mike hired me on thinking I was like this, you know, classically trained, uh, you know, orchestral guy. And he was delighted when I finally arrived to realize that at heart, I was just a headbanging rock and roll guy who was posing as a classical guy. And that ended up being many ways more valuable to him that I was kind of like that, that I was more of a popular music person. And that opened a lot of doors. So then what, specifically what happened, and then I'll wrap up the story, is that um, Mike was like working like five or six TV series at a time during those days. It's very enviable. And he got this TV series from a friend of his uh, producer friend of his who he it wasn't very good and he didn't want to do it and he just handed it off to me and said you score this and this was like week three that i was working for mike wow so he said you score this we'll put your name on the screen you can keep some of the money not most of it and away we go <laughs> so basically three weeks after arriving in los angeles i'm scoring a tv show with my name on it and my friends and family are able to see it that's how i started <laughs> If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That's amazing. That's really good. I feel like, you know, having your name on it, I feel like that's the struggle. People that I know that are composers or people that I've interviewed that are composers, it's like you work under somebody and you learn a lot, but it takes a long time before your name pops up on anything. So it's, that's a huge advantage that, that you had is to have your name actually on there as opposed to his name with your music. Yeah, it just worked out really nicely. And he was very generous with that. Because at that point in his career, he had already like, he's already like gigantic, very wealthy composer, gigantic in legend, not in size. And uh, he, <laughs> did, he, 
he was he was <laughs> he was able to share credit. It just infect his career. Like it wasn't like you know, like if Hans Zimmer shares a screen credit, no one thinks Hans Zimmer is not a great composer. He's still a great composer, right? So it just was a good deal for the a few young composers who work with Mike Mike Post. I mean, like you know, a kind of some money, and then like this big credit, which you can just hang your hat on and say like I scored this show. That's great. It worked out nicely. That's really good. And so I'm guessing that kind of led to King of the Hill eventually. Yeah. Question on King of the Hill. I mean, I know that that show has run for so long. That was probably one of those shows where it was very quick turnaround, right? They're probably animating stuff that you're scoring like a couple days prior, right? That's how those shows work. They're very quick, right? No, not exactly. The turnaround to me is quick, but the animation process, you know, is months, months long. So and I wasn't, I wasn't always quite involved in this part of the procedure, but the writers would write all the scripts and then send it off to, you know, some child labor camp in China and you know, animate all everything and, and then send it back months later. And then it'd be edited and made into each episode. But still, by the time I was invited to, to view each individual episode, usually it's about 10 days. Okay. Between when I'd see it and when I would score it. Wow. So a reasonable amount of time. And it was, you know, it was just so much fun to do that show because first of all, it's just so well written and so fun. And the characters are great. And also, it was an orchestral score, small orchestra and electric guitars every week. Yeah. And that was just an amazing experience to be able to show up to um, the recording studio at 20th Century Fox, famous recording studio. It's one of the best in the world. Yeah. Dozens of times a year. And there's great orchestra and just conduct these players and just like learn stuff. And it's just amazing. Just like really, really wonderful experience. I've only been to that stage once. I had to like go pick up a hard drive <laughs> and to kind of like describe to people how, how big this room is. I walked in and I imagined because the room was so big that I walked into the live room. I was like, oh shit, I'm in the live room. And then I was like, no, I'm in the control room. The control room is massive. Yeah. It is just like impressive, impressive room. It's good. Yeah. I think, I think one of the, certainly the, the largest mixing console I've ever seen. I don't know, like several hundred faders on that thing. It's just crazy. Oh, it's- it's huge, huge. Then, then you go in the main room and it's it, in, in the main room where the orchestra sits. It's almost like you can just hear the echoing of all the great scores that have been recorded in that room for 80 years, you know, back to the 30s. Just it's just the history there is, is quite something. Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, this is a complete tangent. But did you talk about the room? I did strings, a small string section in Studio 3 at East West, which was cello and mm. and Western, which is the... Beach Boys room, the Pet Sounds room. And yeah, it sounds like it. You put the room mics up in that room and you're like, oh, this sounds like what Pet Sounds sounds like right here in this room. Yeah, I was going to, that particular room, which is famous, that is the Pet Sounds room. We recorded this, the main title for Mozart in the Jungle in that, in that room. The, oh, nice. The East West. And um, it's just like a sound to all these great studios. It's, there's such a vibe. I love that one. Yeah. But I think the vibiest studio in Los Angeles that I like is Capitol Records. That just sounds like those great Sinatra uh, recordings and, you know, Nat King Cole and Ella Fitzgerald. Like you can just sort of feel that, that wonderful richness in, in that room. Oh, yeah. I'm biased. I worked there for eight years. So, <laughs> <laughs> did you? Yeah. So I, lo- I love that place. Love that place. Can we talk about Mozart in the Jungle? Because I think that's kind of a different yeah. process than, than most people are kind of familiar with. I know that you were composing, but you were also doing. I guess, like kind of overall music producing because there was visuals tied to, there's music happening in the show, right? So 
things had to correspond with that. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how different that was from your normal film score? Yeah, happy to. Uh, despite my glib statement earlier about, you know, I learned, I knew everything at 17 to be a film composer. Occasionally I do get some jobs that do that take advantage of like my wider array of talents and training. And that's one of them. And that's preceded, uh, in a similar way by the film Marie Antoinette, Sophia Coppola's film on that film. My title was historic music consultant, which means I did a lot of background research for, for Sophia and it's like sort of helped her create the musical world. And then I also did um, orchestral arrangements of some of the cues, including a piece by Vivaldi and a piece by Susie and the Banshees mixed like Vivaldi, um, stuff like that. So it's like, just like fun to sort of like, you know, have all these different hats. Yeah. So that was Sophia's film. Her brother, Roman, was the producer on, on Mozart in the Jungle. And we just sort of sort of knew each other from, I don't know, here and there, different projects. So Roman knew me and reached out to work on Mozart. And um, I had a lot of different tasks on that, which I really enjoyed all of them. Um, but it started out with working with the writers, looking at the scripts, and just trying to make sure the storylines and the dialogue sounded like real classical musicians. Because we knew this. We knew that if we did not nail the authentic character of the culture of classical musicians, we would be dead out and right out of the gate. You know, we'd be just like excoriated by the people in the music community who would like, you know, bomb us on websites with, with, with complaints. They still did it anyway, but less so. So we just want, it was really important to make sure we got that stuff right. And that was fun. Like, you know, just like a writer would write, would call me up and say, what, you know, what, I have the storyline and this has to happen. What famous piece would fit in the storyline? Oh, wow. You know, that kind of thing. For example, I'll give you a real example. At the at end of episode second season, the orchestra is on strike, and the conductor, played by Gael Garcia Barnal, wants to take the orchestra across the street out to a park and just play for the people, and just like make the statement, "We're just playing for the people for free." So the question is, what piece would would this orchestra play in the middle of the park in the afternoon, just for people walking by? And um, I selected for the storyline Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe, and the reason is just because it's it's a uh, it's a pastoral music. It's very magical. It's colorful and it has the sounds of birds in the orchestra and we're like outside in, in the square. So it fit. And it was also a piece of music, which I knew Gael could um, pretend conduct in a way that would be fluid and beautiful. Uh, right, right. So you, you, you were coaching people on their conducting and, and everything at that point. Yeah, so there's so much to do because the, all the characters within the cast and what's in the jungle, they're all classical musicians. And, and most of them are seen playing instruments on, you know, on camera at some point. So one of my many jobs was to assign instrumental coaches to each actor. Oh, wow. So, um, Lola Kirk, who's a, who is our main actress and she plays oboe. So we'd have to have an oboe player to help her figure out like how to look like she's playing oboe. And we had that for, um, Saffron Burroughs, who was a cellist. So she had her cello coach and it was important to find people that kind of really fit their personality, like sort of not just show Saffron how to play, but sort of help her develop her characterization in the way that she handled her instrument. That was fun. Yeah. And it was my job to do that, to be the coach for our two main characters who were portraying conductors. That would be Gael and the other one would be Malcolm McDowell. And that was fun. That was fun, like how to approach that and also how to develop, how to, how to sort of find a conducting technique for each of those characters that fit you know, who they're portraying. Right. 
Gael's character is much more sort of lusty and emotional in a Bernstein sort of way. Malcolm McDowell played like a, a fierce, very serious conductor in the manner of Von Karahan. So we sort of like made sure that there was a characterization difference in the way they handled the podium. I think that comes across nicely in, in, in the series. That's awesome. That level of detail is just so, so impressive. I love it. I, now I have to watch Mozart in the Jungle. I have to confess I haven't seen it. <laughs> but uh, I think this, this might be related, and it's just a random thought that came to me while you were talking. When you're in a situation like that where there's, there's actual music happening on camera as part of the story, say your cello player is practicing or, or whatnot, does that become a musical cue for the composer? Does that count as a cue? If you have to do cello that someone's then going to play on stage or, or on screen, or is it not a cue? <laughs> I don't, that's kind of, oh, wow. That's a deep question. <laughs> that's a really inside question. You're going to pull the cue sheet out and check. Well, here's what we would do. I, I, I'm in my studio here in Sherman Oaks, and um, I would have real players come here and record their parts. The oboe, the oboist would come and play little excerpts of solo oboe stuff that's written in the script. So we prepare that ahead of time, record it, then we'd send it off to the set, which is in New York, and there'd be playback on the set, and Lola would be listening to the recording that I made here, and then the sort of play along. And there's there's ways of sort of syncing that up together. Right. So that that's how it worked. And sometimes it was quite involved. For example, there's one episode, which is a lot of fun, um, where Dermot Mulroney, the actor who I actually worked with quite a lot over the years, he was guest starring as as a cellist who um, I think he was kind of like, uh, uh, there's a philandering nature to his character. So um, there was something about that. But anyway, Dermot um, is actually for real a cellist and he, and he plays quite well, the actor. And uh, he had the, might've been the Elgar concerto in his fingers. So we recorded that, recorded him in my studio here playing the solo parts to that concerto. And then, then he flew, it, flew out to New York and we'd play back an orchestra with him playing. And it was actually just mimicking to the recording we made here. But it sounded awesome. That's really cool. I love the little details behind like a big production like that. But if you don't mind, I'd love to step away from film and talk video game a little bit. You, you've done a fair bit of video game music. I've always wanted to kind of dig in on the show with somebody that's done some big games like you have about just how that process works. I know people, like I've talked to people that have been near it, but not anybody that's been like knee deep. So how do you get involved in a game? Like, is it super early? What are you scoring to? Or are you just making music that they use? Like, what does video game music look like? Telling story with music is transferable to different medium, but there's a different approach on computer games. I do want to take a little step back on this before I jump in, because it's worth mentioning this is most of us creative professionals, well, we collaboration is such a big part of what we do. And I have projects where I am like the head guy and I have a team with me. And I'm, sometimes I'm brought on board other people's projects, my colleagues' projects, um, just because they might want different voices, different attitudes, different points of view. Uh, so I will, you know, work on some of their projects. Now, most of my video games, the bigger ticket ones, have been collaborations with uh, my friend and colleague, Jesper Kidd, who is one of the... Um, one of the best films, uh, video game composers out there. And he's just a terrific, and he's also a terrific friend of mine. So the bulk of my video game work has been on his projects. And, um, so I just want to make that disclaimer because, um, because that's how that worked. Now, 
But your question is, how is it different? And uh, the main thing is this. With video, unlike film, with video, you're creating like a universe of music, like kind of like, um, it's kind of like you're looking at a picture, like let's see, you know, it's like a flat 2D picture and it might be a, a pastoral field and, and little forest creatures going through and a zombie. And so you're looking at that picture <laughs> and you're thinking, okay, what, what music would feel right here to be a complement to this visual? And so you have to really nail that world, like what's the universe of that picture? But what you aren't doing is you aren't um, dynamically changing the music to follow this uh, progression of a story. And that is definitely what you do in film. So in other words, there's like, you might score like the pastoral nature and in film, you might the pastoral nature and there's the, you know, there's like the deer. And then when the zombies show up, it's like the music changes. And, and then the zombies start, you know, fighting, then it gets even more intense. Um, it's a different approach with video where you're just kind of like sort of creating music that would make sense in the overall world of that pastoral field. But then what you also do, which is really fascinating, is you build into the music various layers of intensity. So you might have, say, pastoral music, and then when you see the, the zombie, the music is constructed so there's a, a layer that goes on that first layer that becomes more intense. And it makes sense musically so the, the gamer is, not, is unaware that there's been a shift in the music. And the shift is um, a result of the algorithm of his or her playing. So they, if the player does something, the music will shift over to the next level. And then there might be a, then another level of intensity when the battle starts to get really big and the music shifts up to that. And then if the battle abates, then the music shifts down to the lower level. So it's a construction, like multi-tiered approach to music. And that's kind of the technical challenge to making good game music. Now, does it, is it delivered in a fashion that's like almost like stems? Like to me, I'm imagining how it's being done in, in the computer. Is it adding stems on top of the original piece or is it cutting between different pieces? Does that make sense? Yes, it's both. So version A might, we always deliver in stems these days no matter what. So there might be six stems or there might be 60 stems. And then version B, likewise, the multiple stems. But again, like there might be 60 stems, but there is a version which is a simple stereo mix, which is the um, definitive version. Right. And the music is designed to be able to go back and forth between these different levels of intensity. So what that means is probably you're in the same tempo for the most part. You're in the same or compatible keys but something happens during the um, the switch from one piece to another piece, depending on the um, requirements of the visual. Got it. That's cool. Yeah, it just seems like a really interesting world to me. I grew up playing a ton of video games and never really dawned on it. It's it is really fun, you know, and, and, and for composers who do it or want to do it, there's that built-in requirement of trying to create the music that does this stuff where it, it changes its intensity, but that ends up being something that makes it interesting. So you you people who are really good at this write with that in mind. How, how am I going to create music, which is going to be able to zip back and forth between these different levels? Yeah, compositionally, you can't really start here and go go off the map because eventually, somehow, you're going to have to end up back. That's it's great, fascinating. Yeah. Um, do you enjoy that work? <laughs> or is it just it, it's a nice mi it mixes things up. I enjoy every work I get because I'm just so happy <laughs> that anyone write, asks me to write music for anything. <laughs> Boy, it's so true. You know, it's like. I keep myself pretty busy as a professional, but there's always this terror, I think, that all of us have, which is that the phone will stop ringing forever and that's it. <laughs> so, so I enjoy every job and cherish it. <laughs> <laughs> there, 
I enjoy them all equally. Why do you think that is? Because I feel that same way. It's like, you know, if nobody calls to do a mix for like a week, I'm like, oh, no, it's over. What should I do? Should I go back to college? I, what is it about musicians that make us feel this way? I, I don't even know anymore. Well, it's a dumb way to make a living for one, you know, music. <laughs> wow. Holy crap. I mean, boy, that's just like it's what fun, a though. weird profession. <laughs> it is so much fun. I mean, and oh boy. I will I will get together with my colleagues and we'll just bitch and moan about like what a terrible industry we're in and then we'll then we'll say, yeah, but we're so lucky. So lucky just to be working in it, you know, grateful. Do you get a chance to uh, just make your own music for your own music's sake? That's a good question. And um, huh. mostly the answer is no, just because, you know, I don't know. It's like asking a surgeon, do you just do like operations on the side for fun? You're like, when I'm done, <laughs> I want to just get on my bike, you know, and ride somewhere. It's true. It's true. It's true. You know, I think this <laughs> That surgeon story is a good one, but it doesn't really apply. I think it's more like an actor. You know, it's like, you know, an actor is going to perfect and hone their and develop their skills within the jobs they have, but they're, they're not acting, they're not, not acting. So I will choose and I will seek out jobs, you know, where I get paid that might be more of a challenge or that's going to, that I, I seek that out because it's going to be a stretch of some, of some sort, you know? Yeah. That I do because that's what I like doing. But there is one thing, actually, when you ask you, do I do it on music when I'm not scoring? There is one thing I've, I've sort of started to adopt lately, which is to um, come into my studio and just play without an objective. That's kind of a new thing. That's cool. Where I might, for example, purchase some new piece of equipment and, uh, and just mess with it, you know, at nighttime after my work is done. Just like, you know, mess around for just no particular pleasure. Yeah. And, and that's something that's sort of new for me. And, I, and I'm enjoying doing that. That's awesome. I don't know. The longer we're all in this industry, the, the more you need that little, that little outlet, you know, when you can just play guitar again, like you were 15 or mess around with a keyboard, like it's your first keyboard. So I think it's great. It's like any relationship you're in. Sometimes you have to remind yourself why you're there, you know, One's relationship with music is like your relationship with people. If you value the relationship, you have to foster it. You have to make sure it's healthy. Yeah. And sometimes the relationship is better than others. You know, as a married man, I can give you all sorts of stories about that. But, uh, you know, but but it's, it's, it, but they're similar. It's just, like, it's just like my relationship with music is like that. It's, it needs to be needs to be fostered. And I hope um, I hope I don't fall out of love. I haven't so far, you know, knock on wood. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you, um, just on the way out, just a couple, you know, random advice questions. Do you have any tips for aspiring composers that are maybe they're either about to go to music school or they just finished or they're not going to go to music school, but they want to do film and television composition? Do you have any advice for them? I have hours of advice for them, but let's try something simple. I mean, you and I earlier were talking about our education, you were at, uh, at Berkeley and me at USC, and there's something these crazy great musicians that you encounter. And what's interesting, which you, I bet you you'll, you know, agree to your experience about, about this, but when you look back, like the people who are like the stars at a university often are not the ones with big careers. Agreed. The people who you thought was going to be like the biggest guitarist in the world, like, you know, maybe not. And somebody else, somebody else who like sat in the back of the class and that was like the multimillionaire. Yeah. Or whoever. That really is the case. So what that taught to me is this, is young composer, uh, young musicians, don't be intimidated by them. Don't be intimidated by your own perceived lack of talent 
Um, you're more talented than you realize. And all it requires, not all it requires, but what it does require to create a career is just finding out the two things that you do and try to maximize it. Yeah. Working hard, putting in hours is more important, I think, than God-given talent. Way more important. Yep. Uh, and the people who just, I think, want it the most and work the hardest are going to be the the most artistically successful, the ones who like, you know, find something that is special. And it's not necessary to master the whole field of music, says the guy who went to Harvard. Uh, it's not necessary <laughs> to do that. It's just, <laughs> it's just find something that makes you a little unique. That's what's going to serve you in the long run. I agree with that completely. That, that's really good advice. And you, you made me think, you know, those people that have the God-given talent and who always seem to be like the great, best guitar player we've ever seen, they also, they didn't have to maybe work as much as some of the people around them. And then when the time comes when they have to, they sometimes don't want to because they never had before. And they're like, <laughs> what do you mean I have to practice now? I haven't had to practice for 18 years and now, now I have to practice. And then I, I feel like that's a block for them. Yeah. Meanwhile, everybody else is like, holy hell, he's so good. I need to practice all day. Yeah, that's true. Boy, I mean, we can, we can make a whole podcast series about this topic. I hope we yeah. do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just out of that. Just, yeah. yeah. This is an interesting question that I've been trying to, I'm trying to find the best phrasing for this question. And, and so it's not really like been inserted into a lot of shows, but part of the reason I started this podcast was to kind of help people skip some of the mistakes that I made early in my career as an engineer. Are there any decisions or moments in your career that you initially thought were a mistake or a big setback that actually turned into like big moments of growth or aha moments for you? That's a good question. It's a hard, that, that should be a question you prepare for. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, I just, I think there's some obvious answers that probably um, most people agree with, which is, you know, among them, um, don't get complacent. You know, always try to learn new things. I'm always buying new musical instruments and trying to figure out how to make them work. And like, you know, not always using the things I'm really good at. Oftentimes it's, mm. it's good. It's fruitful to try to find things you're not good at. In my case, for, that also includes like playing instruments that I don't play, recording instruments that I don't play just to have a, a certain struggle in the sound of the music. Yeah. So that, that's something that I do. And I tell you, I do have, I, apropos to your question, I do have a new new year's resolution which is in the same topic. In my resolution, I kind of, I like to use the word New Year's intention rather than resolution because the resolution kind of implies if, if, if you don't do it, then, then you've failed. So my New Year's intention this year is to break patterns oh. and not always do the things I always do uh, in music and everything else, you know, where I go yeah. on vacation, what I order for, what I eat for food, what I do on the weekends, just like try to do something different. And, uh, and, and like go out of my way to like stop myself from always doing the same thing. That's awesome. I really love that. Well, and I also, I just did a, a video about New Year's resolutions. And I feel like best way to rephrase this is so many people make New Year's resolutions based on what they want to do. You know what I mean? People are like, oh, I want to get a Grammy or I want to like lose 20 pounds. But your resolution is different. Your resolution is what you can control, which is I'm actively going to not do the things that I'm inclined to do. And and I feel like that's why so many people, they, they don't do their New Year's resolution because it's out of their control to begin with. You know, they're like setting themselves yeah. up for failure. Anyway, this is fresh in my head because I just talked about it. But no, it's so true. And, and you, you talked earlier, like, why, why are musicians always so insecure about this kind of stuff? Part of it is because 
you know, we kind of are depending on somebody else to give us a gig. And as much as we can get that out of the equation, then you have better chance for success. Of course, we, you know, we need, all need to make a living. But um, if your goals are things that don't require somebody else to make happen, you're more likely to have a chance of fulfilling them. Yeah, exactly. Or at least feel like you're getting momentum, you know, and be like, well, I did the thing that I wanted to do 80% of the year. I feel good. I'll, I'll mark it down <laughs> as a win. Oh, 80% would be a huge win. I think 30% would also be a victory. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get to our last couple questions, any favorite toys for you in the studio? Like any go-to gear when you're creating? Oh, I love synthesizers. Vintage synthesizers is just like it's a thing. And uh, so I love keyboards with dials. Nice. Right behind me, uh, visually, there's this uh, EMS Putney from 1969. And I have a bunch of other like vintage stuff. My go-to is the Roland Juno 106 from the early 80s. And um, I just love the way it sounds. And it's easy, easy to program, which is important. And it just kind of fits into everything. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like I would kind of put the Juno on all my scores, working hard to make sure it doesn't sound like the 80s, because that's always, you know, danger. <laughs> so that's my go-to stuff. It's like that, I think. Yeah. Before we jumped on, I was listening to a, a few things that I could find on Spotify. The, um, is it Santa Barbara 1979 or, or is it called 1979 Santa Barbara? Yeah, it's one or the other. Yeah, really cool. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That score from 20th Century Women uses some very specific synthesizers from they were like brand new at that time because the movie takes place in 1979. So specifically, there was the um, sequential circuits Prophet Five. That was the main sound of that score, which was uh, in that year was like that was the cool new color. So right. I wanted to really exploit that. That's very cool. I'm gonna have to. Uh, is that whole score available on Spotify? Yeah, I believe so. Well, it's off. It's you know, it's, there's a soundtrack album, so available somewhere. Okay. <laughs> and if you listen to it, I'll get, I'll get my three cents from Spotify. That's right. Well, I'll give you three more cents after we get off this call while I'm eating lunch. Um, all right. So we've got the traditional questions I end the show with. Uh, one of them is kind of a music recommendation. Is there, are there any composers or any artists that you really love that you think people should be listening to more? Anything that maybe you think is obscure or, or even popular? You know, as a working musician, people will often ask me, like, what do I listen? What do I listen to? And, and I'm, I usually disappoint them with my answer because it's often very pedestrian. Um, <laughs> but I will tell you, there is one band that I've been following for a few years and they have a new album out and I will give them a shout out. And I'm going to pronounce the name wrong. It's um, they're called Alton Gun and they're a Turkish Belgian band. And it's kind of like psychedelic, progressive psychedelic versions of Turkish folk songs, but they're just really groovy and cool. Okay. So I like this band, Alton Gun, and it's Gun with a G, umlaut U, N. So it might be Gein, Alton Gein. Please, someone tell me how it's pronounced, but they're cool. And I saw them in concert in LA about three years ago. One of the loudest shows I've ever saw. So that's a band that I will recommend just for, just for joy. They're really nice. Good. Awesome. But I'll, uh, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And I should also tell people that you did, um, that I thought was awesome an arrangement of uh, Listomania by um, Phoenix. That That is really awesome. People should check that out. Thank you. Yeah, that was for Mozart in the Jungle. That was the piece recorded there at, at the Pet Sound Studio. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's, it, anyway, it's a pretty dope. Pretty dope. I enjoyed it. Um, so, okay, the last last couple questions of the show is, uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Right now. I've been thinking about this recently because um, I recently 
landed like a big contract on, on, on a new project. And it was like, it's always just so great. You know, when someone calls or emails and says, you know, can you do this thing? And it's like, Hey, but it also made me realize something really important when this big job came in, which is the danger of allowing these kind of external invitations to define my level of success. So even though I'm very thrilled to get these new jobs, I'm changing my attitude towards them, which is that I can't let that be the only thing that measures my self-worth. That thing being like people wanting me to work. So I'm kind of trying to adjust my focus and I haven't really come up with a formula yet that is perfect, but the idea is again, not to let somebody else's desire to employ me or need to employ me to be the only thing that defines my, um, my worth as an artist. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, um, basically everything that this show is about. (laughs) So you just, you just did a trailer for my show. Uh, I, I can't agree with that more. It's just so many, there's so much pressure in this industry to like, just, I don't know. It's like we talked about the approval thing. It's, you know, you want approval from your clients, you want approval from your peers and, and you're, yeah, the more you work, the bigger, the clients and your self-worth that you're right. It just gets tied up in like the next big thing, the next big thing, the next big thing. You just kind of forget, you know, what you used to just play guitar or, or play flute or, you know, whatever. And now here you are, you know, lost, lost in it. No, not lost, but yeah, that's great advice for anybody. Whether you're just starting out, you should go back and listen to that because it's great. <laughs> Last question is, uh, what is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Wow. Good question. Goals are important. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's those people that we know who just like chart out their entire career trajectory, like on a yellow pad and they can do it. Um, I'm not great <laughs> at that. Despite what you just said earlier about breaking patterns and, and also not letting people define my level of success, those are important, but also just keeping myself active and in, in interested ongoing. Like I want to continue to write music. I want to feel all the time that I have fresh ideas to contribute. And, um, I'm thinking right now, I recently saw interviews in the past few weeks, both from Hans Zimmer and from Steven Spielberg, you know, huge giants. And in both these interviews, they said a similar thing, which is uh, kind of like, I'm just getting started, or I've just finally figured out how I'm doing this stuff, and I'm, I'm better now than ever. That may or may not be true for them and for me, but you want to feel that's the case. Yeah. You know, you want to feel like you still got things to come up with that are going to surprise yourself and other people. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I think that, well, that's the kind of a characteristic in people that are just that successful and that talented is that they are always growing and learning. Like you mentioned, you know, you said you wanted to learn more and more when you continue to go through education. Yeah. You just can't become complacent. You have to keep getting better. So yeah, that's impressive that they just think they made it. They just figured it out. (laughs) That's classic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. Well, this has been a, a ton of fun, Roger. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Please tell people. Yeah, thank you. Tell people where they can find you if you have a project that you want to share. Anything you want to tell people, just jump in there and let them hear it. Okay, well, the late, latest stuff is I have a movie that came out last month on Hulu called Darby and the Dead. That's my most recent feature film. I have um, a project I'm working on for Cartoon Network right now called King Star King. It's re- rebooting a series I scored years ago. So we're doing that, and that premieres, I believe, February 13th on Cartoon Network. Okay. And then in May, there is a um, really cool documentary I scored last year called um, Sam Now, and that's going to be broadcast on PBS sometime in May. 
Awesome. Yeah, this will probably be coming out somewhere in March, so everybody can go check out that Cartoon Network show. It's cool. It's out. But yeah, this has been awesome. I really, you know, enjoy chatting and this has been good hang. Thank you. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you for inviting me. That's it for episode 87. Thanks to Roger for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. And remember, the absolute most helpful thing that you can do for the show is to subscribe in both your podcast player and on YouTube. Also, if you could leave a review or share this episode with a friend, it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks to Stephen Boyd for the audio edit on this one. And on that note, I will see y'all next time.